We are talking about Easter eggs. I don't know what comes to mind as soon as I say Easter eggs. Uh, hopefully it's the hard-boiled eggs, first of all, that you sometimes paint. Does anybody still do that? Do you paint the eggs at Easter? Some of you do. I have a question, Nancy. Do you eat them after? No. You, oh, wow, very creative. Maybe I shouldn't have asked a question I didn't know the answer to. But. So Easter eggs are something that we're familiar with. Of course, the whole tradition came from the practice of Lent, because typically during Lent, you're not supposed to consume dairy or meat or like eggs. And so Shrove Tuesday, right before Ash Wednesday, you're supposed to make a lot of pancakes. And anybody remember doing that? Anybody do that when you're a kid? And use up all the eggs, use up all the uh, stuff you weren't allowed to eat. The problem is the chickens don't observe Lent. So they keep producing eggs. What are you going to do with them, especially if you don't have refrigeration? Well, let's hard boil them and paint them red or something like that. So the whole tradition of Easter eggs is quite steeped, actually, within the church calendar and the church rhythm if you're from sort of the high church background and know some of that. So that's part of what Easter eggs are. I prefer the chocolate kind, just if you're wondering. Yeah. And uh, the other week, uh, we were doing some tidying up downstairs, and I think the youth had an Easter egg hunt with chocolate eggs a couple of years ago, and I found a couple that they didn't find. I have to say, they weren't fresh. Probably shouldn't have eaten those, but... So that's one level of Easter eggs. However, the term Easter egg has another connotation. And if you're a gamer or if you're into movies, you know this. An Easter egg is something that's hidden in the game or hidden in a movie or a TV show that if you hunt for it, it gives you a clue that can give you access to maybe a different level of the game or maybe access to some greater information and a greater immersive experience in the movie or the game. Those are called Easter eggs. Watch for them, look them up. It's a lot of fun if you're into that sort of thing. Well, it might surprise you to learn that there are Easter eggs like this in the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to explore over the next number of Sundays. The little traces of Jesus in the Old Testament. The little clues that once we begin to tap into them, will enhance our whole experience of the Old Testament Scriptures. It will make you want to explore them more so you can hunt for the Easter eggs, these traces of Jesus all throughout what we call the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, how do we know this? How do we even clue into this? Well, because Jesus told us. One day Jesus was uh, arguing with the Pharisees, and He said something like this to them. He said, you guys, you look at the Scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. But these are the Scriptures that testify about me. What an audacious statement. I mean, think about that for a minute. These ancient, sacred texts that people have treasured for generations and thousands of years. And Jesus says, they're actually about me. Wow. So Jesus points to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Scriptures, and says, you'll find me there. Another time, he, after the resurrection, this is one of my favorite stories, he was walking down the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples, and they didn't really know who he was. But then as he began to go, it says that, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he talked to them about himself from the Old Testament Scriptures. All these Old Testament Scriptures and passages 
that pointed them. Their hearts burned within them because they knew it was true that these Old Testament Scriptures contain traces of Jesus. In what way are they traces? Well, three ways that I want to point out really quickly this morning. One is that Jesus is patterned in the Old Testament. There are patterns of Jesus that are in the Old Testament that we don't know about really until we read the New Testament and the Gospel. Patterns like Noah and the ark. It's not actually just about Noah and the ark. It's about the salvation story that comes through Jesus. Patterns like the story of Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt. That's also a pattern of Jesus. Stories like David and lots of stories that come out of David that set us up as patterns, as types of the Messiah that was to come. And also even stories like Jonah and the whale. Don't get caught up with, could a whale or a fish really swallow a man and all that? Don't get lost in that. It's really a story about Jesus. That's the amazing thing as we come to the gospel, we go, aha, we've been learning about Jesus all along. There's patterns of Jesus in the Old Testament. But not only that, Jesus is also promised in the Old Testament. He's promised in the Hebrew Scriptures very explicitly. One of our great verses that we read at Christmas time is what? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Yeah. And we could go on and on about all the different specific prophecies, the promises of God in the Old Testament that speak about Jesus. There's a mathematician, I think he died back in 1980, I'm not sure about this, and his name was Peter Stoner, uh, but he was a mathematician, professor of mathematics, and uh, he must have had some time on his hands because he did the math mathematical probability of coming up with eight specific things about a child that was about to be born. So imagine for a moment that Christine and I were expecting another child. We're not. I just want to stop that rumor that I just started. But imagine for a moment, just play this game with me for a moment. And I asked you to predict eight things about this child. You were going to tell me whether it was going to be a boy or a girl without knowing the ultrasound results. And you're going to say where the child was to be born and when and maybe how much it weighed and maybe what occupation it would have and maybe even when the child was eight things that you come up with. Do you know what your chances of getting those eight things right are one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a lot of zeros after that 10. That's very improbable. Now, if you can't really grasp the numbers, uh, this mathematician, he put it into sort of a physical equation so we can understand it. He said, imagine the state of Texas. Alberta is just a little bit smaller than Texas, so we'll say, imagine the province of Alberta. Now take loonies and cover the province of Alberta two feet deep in loonies, and then take one of those loonies and mark an X on it and chuck it somewhere in the province. And then we're going to take Larry, and we're going to put a blindfold on Larry and say, Larry, you have one chance to pick up that marked loony. Larry's chances of getting that loony is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Thanks, Larry. Yeah, it's impossible. It's crazy to get those things right about the child. And yet there are over 300 promises and prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, and they all come true. Even things that were beyond his control. Some people say, well, he just knew what the promises and prophecies were and fulfilled them himself. But his place of birth and all those kind of things. And so we have promises of Jesus. 
in the Old Testament. And as we dig into those, our faith is strengthened. But here's my big point that I want to make in this section. Jesus is not only patterned in the Old Testament, He's not only promised in the Old Testament, He's present in the Old Testament. He's there. The story of Jesus didn't start with Bethlehem. The story of Jesus didn't start with dear sweet baby Jesus. It goes back a lot, a lot further than that. And it's surprising how explicit the New Testament authors are about Jesus' presence in the Old Testament. John points this out in his gospel. If you remember the opening of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When was Jesus? In the beginning. He was already there. That's the astounding claim of the gospel, is that Jesus was already there in the beginning. All things were made by Him. That's the astounding claim of the gospel. Jesus Himself makes it clear, again when He's arguing with the Pharisees, and He ends up saying to them, before Abraham was, I am. What a claim. Jesus was already there. And we could go on, story after story, but if you turn to John chapter 8, the I am in whom Abraham rejoiced, that was Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 11, the Lord who motivated Moses, that was actually Jesus. That's what Hebrews claims. Jude 5, if you look up that verse, Jude claims that the Redeemer who brought them out of Egypt, that was Jesus, Jude says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the rock in the wilderness wasn't just a rock. That was Jesus. He was present there. And in John chapter 12, the king of Isaiah's temple vision, that was the Son of God. That was Jesus. Jesus is there present in the Old Testament. And once we begin to tap into that, it unlocks the whole story for us, doesn't it? So the first Easter egg that I really want to look at, though, is the Easter egg that was read for us from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, if you remember the setting, Adam and Eve have messed things up royally. Now, don't be too hard on Adam and Eve, because you and I would have done the same thing. That's the point of the story, right? The point of the story isn't to blame Adam and Eve. The point of the story is to see it as a mirror reflection of what we do as humanity. God gives us a million choices says, don't touch this, and what do we do? We touch that. That's right. That's what we do, and that's the whole point of the story in some ways, that innately we have this bent against God, bent to disobey, and that's part of who we are. But Adam and Eve, they've messed up, and they know it, and they know it because they suddenly realize that they're naked, and they're walking around the garden naked, and they decide that they're going to hide. Not only that, they decide, what do they, what do they do? They make their own clothes. Always a bad idea, unless you're really gifted. So they sew fig leaves together. And uh, Eve, I'm sure, came out after sewing her leaves and came out and showed Adam and said, Adam, what do you think? This is my fall outfit. <laughs> think about it. It'll come. Okay. <clears throat> it sounded better in my head than it did out loud even, but... Seriously, though, have you ever been in a situation where you know you've messed up? You know you've messed up royally, that you've disobeyed God, that you've hurt others, that you've 
You've offended the whole grace of God. What do you feel like doing? Hiding. That's Adam and Eve. That's where they're at. They're hiding because they're ashamed. They've messed up royally. And in the midst of God coming into the garden and pronouncing judgment on them, which God has to do, He can't let them just get away with it. God is just. But in the midst of pronouncing judgment, God offers a promise. That's the amazing grace of God. Even when we've messed up royally, He's already planning a way back for us. He's already making a way back. Even when we haven't bothered to ask for forgiveness, even when we're still in hiding, even when we're, we're sewing our own stupid clothes together to cover up our shame, God is saying, no, I've got a better way back, and I've got it in plan and in action. And so this is something in Genesis 3, sometimes called the proto-evangelium, which is a fancy way of saying the first good news. The good news doesn't start in the New Testament. It starts right here in Genesis chapter 3. Let me read it to you again in the message translation. God told the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed. Cursed beyond all cattle and wild animals. Cursed to slink on your belly and eat dirt all your life. I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll wound your head, you'll wound his heel. The promise is there. The promise is there. And so let's talk about that a little bit more. We know the identity of the serpent, literally the shining one. We know that identity because of Revelation chapter 12, where it says that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So we know this identity. It's Satan, but it's also the offspring of Satan. The offspring of Satan is sin and evil. And we're well aware of it, aren't we? Aren't we well acquainted with the offspring of Satan? Because it's around us all the time. We see it constantly in the news and maybe even in our lives. And there's going to be a war. There is a war happening between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. So the snake, the symbol of evil, this promise says, will attempt to harm the offspring of the woman, but the offspring of the woman will crush his head. Everybody remember seeing The Passion of the Christ, a movie? I'm not sure whether to recommend it or not. It's got a lot of graphic material in it. But one of the, the opening scenes that really caught my attention is Jesus in the garden. And there's a shadowy figure that looks quite evil. And out of the shadowy figure comes this serpent, this snake, while Jesus is pouring out his soul. And the snake comes up just about to bite the heel of the character who plays Jesus. And stomp! The character crushes the head of the snake. That's, that's what's happening. Yeah, someone says, squish. That's exactly right. That's the promise that's here. That's what we're waiting for. What a glorious promise that some descendant of the woman was to destroy Satan and evil. That's the promise that we're given in this place. So now, let me ask you something. What would happen to you, and what would you do if someone, I don't know, let's say Eric. I'm going to pick on Eric because I don't see Doug. <laughs> and Eric was talking about being powerful. Let's say Eric came up to you at the beginning of the service, and he said, after this service, I am going to destroy you. And you're like, what? That's a weird greeting. You're off the greeting team forever, Eric. But can you imagine that? Now, maybe he was just talking about a game of backgammon or something, right? I'm going to really crush you 
at backgammon. But whatever it is, you're beginning to wonder all the service, what do I do with this? That's really a weird way to greet someone, and I'm getting a little nervous. You've got a couple of choices. Soon as I finish talking, you're going to book it out of here because you don't want any confrontation with Eric, especially when he stands on the platform because he looks a lot bigger. But your other option is this, to strike first, to make sure he doesn't have a chance to destroy you. You're going to preempt his strike. Now, I'm being a little silly with my illustration, but that's what happens in this context. Part of that promise says that there's going to be enmity, which is a word that could be used to describe a blood feud between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And the serpent knows that his days are numbered and that he's going to be crushed. So what does he do? He wants to strike first. He wants to strike first to try and preempt the inevitable end. And so we see this playing out all throughout Scripture. Let me just mention a few ways in which we see this very clearly in the Old Testament. First of all, the promise comes to Eve, as we just mentioned. And then Eve has two sons. What are their names? Cain and Abel. I wonder if Eve thought, this is awesome. Redemption is about to come. She was given a promise that her offspring would, would crush Satan, would crush evil. I wonder if she thought, she thought this is it. It's been a short span of evil, and now it's going to be crushed. But what happened? Satan convinces Cain to kill his brother. Now what? But God has another plan, and God gives Adam and Eve another son, and his name is Seth. And in Genesis chapter 4, listen to what Eve says. God has appointed me another seed, another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Satan strikes, but it doesn't interrupt the plan of God. Here's another time. The promise comes to Abram, whose later name is Abraham. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, to your seed, I will give this land. The only problem was, Abraham was what? Old. And he said, my wife, she's old, like really old. And she's not having any children anytime soon. But we've got this promise, so what do we do with it? And so Abraham lived with this promise for many years, actually. But it wasn't being fulfilled, so what did he do? Decided to take the promise into his own hands, and he sleeps with Hagar, and Ishmael's born. Not the child of promise. That's a distraction from Satan. That's, that's Abraham taking the promise into his own hands, and God says, that's not it. And then Sarah becomes pregnant, and she has a son named Isaac. God keeps the promise going, keeps that line of the seed still alive. The promise comes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says that when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your seed to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom forever. The problem is, David's sons are terrible for the most part. They turn on him. They cause all sorts of conflict. And even Solomon, great Solomon, his kingdom does not last forever. Eventually, the kingdom of, of Israel and Judah collapse. They fail. But God has a promise. And the promise is that there's going to be a greater than David, a greater son than David that's going to come 
and fulfill that. And so the promise comes to Mary. And the angel says, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and name him Jesus. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Your son will be king of Jacob's people forever. And his kingdom will never end. Promise fulfilled. And it's very clear that that initial promise of the seed of the woman is fulfilled in Mary's child, in the birth of Jesus. And we know this for sure because in Galatians 3 it says this, the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but unto your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Wow. Do you see God's plan? Starting right back in Genesis 3 when we all messed up. We all rebelled against God because we're all found in Adam. And right there in the midst of our sin and darkness, God hatches a plan and he sees it to completion in Jesus. That little Easter egg lets us into the unfolding story of God's grace. Well, very quickly to wrap up, what are some of the lessons we learned from this? I've been reflecting on this a little bit last few weeks. And so I encourage you to reflect on this even more and maybe share some of the lessons you learn uh, from this story. But first of all, lesson number one is this. And I never get tired of saying this. God is for us and not against us. If we can just hold on to that lesson, when we're in the midst of messing up, when we find ourselves caught in sin, when we are feeling broken and alone and ashamed and removed and just want to hide, remember this, when God comes to walk in the garden with you, God is for you and not against you. That's the truth. I mean, look what he did throughout all history. Consistently, God is for us and not against us. Whatever image you have of God in your head, whether it's, it's the guy that's just waiting to whack you when you step out of line, let that go and listen to this promise that God shows us. Lesson number two, evil does not get the final word. I know it seems like that. It seems like that in our history right now, that we're living it seems like that sometimes in our lives. We just feel so overwhelmed with the evil in the world around us. But this story reminds us that evil will be crushed. That's the end promise, that God has the last word over evil. But the third lesson is the hardest for me. The third lesson is this. God's timing is not our timing. That's the hardest part for me. I don't have a good answer for this. I don't have a good answer for, for why God didn't protect Abel and make him the redeemer. <laughs> I, I don't know why God didn't, in a very short space of time, turn the whole story around. I, I don't know why God didn't choose one of Eve's direct children right then and there to set things right and crush evil. Imagine all of the pain and the suffering and the evil that could have been prevented if God did it then. I don't know how to answer that. I don't know what that's about, except I learned to trust that God's timing is right because Galatians chapter 4 says this, but when the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman. And so it's a lesson in trust, isn't it? That God's timing is the right timing. God's timing for us to be back in the sanctuary is the right timing. Hard to believe, hard for me to wrestle with and grasp. God's timing as we're searching for the love of our life 
is the right timing. Trust that. Don't take a shortcut like Abraham tried to do. God's timing in whatever promise He's given to us is the right timing. And we'll have to learn to trust that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, God does not give us everything we want, but He does fulfill His promises, leading us along the best and straightest path to Himself. The point of the gospel is not to make us comfortable. The point of the gospel is to return us to God. And when you're with God, you better be prepared to hang on for dear life because God is moving and He's got things to do. And if we want to work alongside of Him, then we need to be ready for action and also ready for suffering when that time comes to. So this one Easter egg in Genesis chapter 3 really sets us up, unlocks so much of all the other prophecies that come along in the Old Testament. It gives the whole trajectory of God's redemptive plan right at the very beginning of the Bible. And it shows this. It shows that God's grace is always greater than all of our sin. Well, what happens now? (laughs) There's still evil in the world, right? Well, the New Testament says that those who believe in Christ are in Christ and are counted as part of the offspring of the woman we actually have a role to play in stamping out evil, even today. And Romans chapter 16, I'll end with this, says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the truth of your word, for the consistency that it has from page one right to the end over so many years and so many places and so many people, you continue to reveal yourself and you show us your grace. Father, we don't deserve it. We deserve uh, judgment because of our sin. And yet in the midst of being just, you have shown us mercy because of the cross. So thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the one to ultimately end Satan and evil. And we pray that you would help us as followers of Jesus to stamp out evil as we come across it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.